Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, October 4th, and today, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Elon Musk's text messages, which just became public as part of Twitter's lawsuit against the tech titan for backing out of his agreement to buy the company. What do the texts reveal about how the rich, famous, and thirsty do business behind the scenes? And later, Bill Cohan is here to talk about the SEC charging Kim Kardashian for unlawfully hyping a cryptocurrency. Bill explains why Kim K is being singled out, but also why the same kind of scrutiny is rarely applied to, say, a hedge fund manager who goes on CNBC to hype a stock. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer, who's doing us all a public service uh, because Teddy has gone through Elon Musk's text messages, which became public in court documents last week as part of the ongoing legal dispute uh, over Musk's effort to buy Twitter and then his uh, effort to not buy Twitter. (laughs) Teddy, there are text messages in here about the Twitter takeover process. Elon texts with Larry Ellison and Joe Rogan, Jack Dorsey. What's the headline out of all of these text messages? Because I keep seeing them just sort of like flitting across Twitter and I feel like people are digging through them for clickbait. Um, What jumped out at you? The headline to me is is just uh, a central premise, uh, I think, of Puck as a publication. Uh, You know, the this is the world, but the powers that be at the intersection of Wall Street, Hollywood, (laughs) Washington, Silicon Valley. Uh, And like, frankly, like we could just run the texts on Puck and it kind of makes the entire premise of this publication pretty well founded, (laughs) which is that this is one world, right? Like Elon Musk's texts about the Twitter deal at the time it was happening in the spring uh, and into the early summer show just how interconnected the upper echelons of the American elite really are. Um, Elon Musk is in tech. Elon Musk is is texting with Joe Rogan about the Twitter bid. What is Joe Rogan? Is he in tech? Is he in politics? I don't know. Elon Musk is getting tons of praise from Ron DeSantis. He's in politics, obviously. Elon Musk... Um, is talking with senior people all across Wall Street. Uh, Michael Grimes, the big banker at Morgan Stanley, is 
you know, all verse texts. Um, Elon is talking with Ari Emanuel. Like, I mean, like, like it just shows the ways in which this world really works. That's that's one headline to me. The second headline to me, it's a fascinating window into how deals actually get done. This is obviously a pretty uh, crazy deal to do a, a take private of Twitter. But the press release that comes out when everyone is happy and, you know, everyone's got their stilted, you know, three paragraph quote in there uh, is not how the real deal making world works. And there is chaos behind the scenes, people doing a deal, backing out of a deal, people who are, you know, talking their book, everyone's competing for each other and grin fucking and actually stabbing each other in the back. Like this is how the real world works. And I love this. These texts is um, it's not just the voyeuristic, like, look at the fancy people, you know, knifing each other. But it is a premise and, and a, a window into the way that deals actually get done, which is a hell of a lot more chaotic than what you see on like PRnewswire.com. I mean, part of that is voyeuristic. It was just really interesting to see how these titans of industry talk to each other. Yeah. Um, one, they know each other. Uh, and two, they feel comfortable enough just like firing off texts to each other. One thing that jumped out at me was in the beginning of this deal, Elon had basically purchased 9% of the company. He gets added to the board. Yep. Briefly. Two-week period. Yeah. Briefly added to the board. <laughs> the CEO of, of Twitter, Parag Agrawal, reaches out to Elon and says, hey, Elon, great to be connected directly. Would love to chat. I mean, that's like, yeah, it's, that's like how it's, I would, ask, yeah. how I would like respond in an email to like someone who like reached out to me to like get a coffee or something. So like right. all the polite, like finessing uh, of just like general business jargon going on there. Um, and then, you know, later they're sort of like flirting, like tech bros, you know, Elon writes, I wrote heavy duty software for 20 years. I interface way better with engineers who are able to do hardcore programming than with program manager MBA types. Mm. And like, Frog says, in our next convo, treat me like an engineer instead of CEO and let's see where we get to. And Elon replies, you got it. And then a few days later, <laughs> like, and this is where things go up the rails. Like Elon just starts tweeting and keeps tweeting and like shit talking Twitter. And like Prague is like, dude, can you just like not do that? Right. Uh, and, and to me, one thing that revealed is, which we all know, Elon is an addict here. Some people are addicted to heroin. Some people are addicted to sex. Some people are addicted to poker. Elon Musk needs help. <laughs> you don't tweet this much and in a, such a self-destructive way and like you're not an addict for this stuff. And that's a problem. And it's like crazy. Right. Anyway, so where does it go from there? Yeah. So from there, you know, uh, just to compress the timeline here, like we're talking about a matter of days between Elon and, and Parag, you know, sending these LinkedIn friendly, uh, you know, emails or texts to each other to like Elon tweeting, is Twitter dying? Question mark which was public. And we know then know behind the scenes, like that is the inflection point where this turns from like a man who is a maybe collaborator into a, I am going to buy this company and take it private. And then, you know, Elon says, I think one of the best tweets of this whole thing, not because it's flattering, but because it just shows that like, these are just people saying things, you know, probably with very little sleep and very little thought after Parag says, is Twitter dying? Elon responds with, what did you get done this week? <laughs> like, I'm not joining the board. This is a waste of time. We'll make an offer to take Twitter private. Like, you get the sense that, like, all these texts are being sent while people are, like, pissing at a urinal and just, like, firing off, like, $30, $40 billion takeover offers based purely on, like, zero thought. That jumped out at me with uh, his exchange with Larry Ellison. I guess, apparently, Larry wanted to be part of the Twitter deal. And um, they're texting. <laughs> Elon is like, roughly what dollar size? And Larry Ellison texts back, a billion dot, 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 or whatever you recommend. And then like Elon writes back, whatever works for you. 
I'd recommend maybe two billion or more. And then Larry Ellison replies a few days later, hmm, since you think I should come in for at least two bill, I'm in for two bill. It's like the way I would text with my buddies about like, like poning up for fantasy football. Like, should we do 10, 20, 50? And these guys are like, uh, one bill. I'll do two. Yeah, two you, you get the sense that Peter, if you like, show this to a friend of yours in Hollywood, like they'd be like, "This is like you are way too. You're being a total rube here. You know, you need to honor these people with like the sophistication <laughs> they deserve." But the reality is, like, you know, look, these are individual people, and and you know, they have the same DNA and the same genetic code as any of us, um, no matter uh, what they're putting in their body at any given time. Elon Musk is obviously a more raw person and just sort of says what he thinks with very low inhibition. But look, I mean, I think this is to broaden this out. This is how lots of deals happen, which is, you know, it's based on who you know. It's not as if like, you know, your series A startup is, you know, texting Larry Ellison, but like you're texting your friend, you're texting someone you went to Stanford Business School with and like, can I get in on the angel round 10,000, 20,000, whatever you think is best. So you add a couple of zeros here. Elon is obviously one of the most networked people in, in American history or American capitalism. I mean, look, this is someone you, we forget because he's only been the public consciousness in this uh, iconic way for maybe the last five years. Like Elon has been a Silicon Valley veteran for 25 years. You know, he's been doing this since like the mid 90s. And he just knows everybody and everybody, you know, wants to get in and work with Elon. This is in some ways how Silicon Valley deal making works on steroids. But it is also a uniquely Elon phenomenon that, you know, he's just sending these texts at 2 a.m. and billions of dollars are flowing over it. There's also this like behavior that surfaces among the people who are well networked, who are schmoozers that revealed itself in Matthias uh, Doffner's, yeah. uh, the CEO of uh, Axel Springer's text to Elon. He just wrote to him like back in March, why don't you buy Twitter? We'll be fun. You know, and it's just like <laughs> a way to like, you see, this guy you know, you see his name in the news, you know, it's like, I'm sure this happened to you, like when you joined Puck, I'm sure you got texts or emails from right. like people from DC you haven't talked to in 10 years who are like, excited to see what's next, you right, know? Right, it's right, like, right, sure. I haven't talked to you in forever. It's just like this like networking maneuver that's so transparent, even though like Doffner had like no interest in the business deal. He's just like reaching out because he's like, oh yeah, he can go to his dinner party later and be like, I talked to Elon today. Like I told him like, this would be interesting. <laughs> Everyone's working each other. Like I feel like another interaction that I think just shows like the, you know, greasing around and disgustingness of, of American culture is the uh, Gail King interaction with Elon Musk. So Gail King is reaching out to Elon Musk in her capacity as a journalist. She's trying to get an interview with Elon, like, and, you know, says some things in a text that like, I think lots of reporters interview requests probably would not look always admirable in sunlight, but Gail King's reaching out to Elon for an interview. Elon is like, is like not even really responding to Gail King's interview request on text, but is basically saying, can you get Oprah Winfrey to join the board? Oprah Winfrey is, many people know, Gail King's like best friend. They're very close. So like Gail is sort of approaching him as like the possible source. And then like Elon is coming back to her as like, this is my conduit to Oprah Winfrey. And just everyone is greasing and working their own angles. Uh, but yeah, look, I mean, Peter, you're making a good point that like this is, to some extent, we're just, this conversation, we're just describing like, the way that like human beings work, which is uh, everyone's hustling. And uh, just in this case, there's a lot more on the line, a lot more famous names involved. Yeah, I mean, and, and the last thing I want to ask you, Teddy, is I mean, there are a lot of breadcrumbs. and There's a lot of like titillating stuff in here. Is there anything in here that signals where this case will go? Or were these just sort of like made public and we don't really have a window into who's got an edge here in this dispute? The central question here is whether or not Twitter was faithfully representing their issues with the number of bots on the platform. 
Elon is, is shown very early on in this process to be concerned about this. Elon's people would argue this is not some last minute, out of thin air conclusion that they've drawn to get out of buying a company for a pretty overvalued price. Now, what makes Twitter look good in this is Elon's like, you know, we were just talking about the diligence done here where it's like 1 billion, 2 billion. Like it is very clear from these texts that like Elon was doing this totally on the fly. And Twitter's going to say, hey, man, like you signed the merger agreement. You had all the time in the world, all the connections in the world, all the money in the world. And like, this is the diligence you did. Like, there's even some text here that suggests like Elon sort of doing diligence after making the offer or and after kind of signing these things. Like the, the timing here is totally wrong. So it certainly does not paint a flattering portrait of like the Elon Musk curriculum uh, for, for studying this deal. Clearly, this is based on a lot of relationships and a lot of beliefs and a lot of like posting culture. Totally. It really feels impulsive and rash. It felt like Elon likes attention. He probably likes it when all of the aforementioned rich and famous people message him. And he's like, shit, this is a cool idea. And it just feels very impulsive. And maybe he just got over his skis and he's like, shit, what did I do? Just because my friends were texting me being like, yo, bring back free speech. Yes, yes. <laughs> do I actually want this business? Anyway, thank you, Teddy, for breaking all that down. Um, I'm sure there will be more Elon Musk Twitter news to come. This is a fun uh, last thing I could read before I did Half Dome this weekend where I contemplated my death several moments and I saw the text come up on my email just before I landed in Yosemite. That stuff gives me sweaty palms. Um, you know, at least you got the content. Yes. At least I got, the, <laughs> at least I got to find out what happens next in the Elon Musk versus Twitter case. It's really what anybody can live for. All right, man. Thank you. Glad you're safe. You bet. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Bill Cohen about Kim Kardashian and the SEC. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. 
The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here with Bill Cohan. How was your weekend, Bill? I was delightfully uh, uneventful. Well, mine was just spent in anticipation of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can get that. I understand that. No, actually, on, on Monday morning, the SEC announced that it has settled charges with Kim Kardashian for about $1.3 million for not disclosing that she was paid two hundred fifty grand for promoting a crypto token called Emacs on her Instagram post. Um, before you laugh, Kim Kardashian, I just checked, she has 330 million followers on Instagram. So for all we know, this is one of the biggest financial promotions of all time. I don't know how many people engaged with this token or bought it. That's the whole country. That's the population of the whole country. Gary Gensler at the SEC, not pleased with this. He even put out a social media post of his own explaining that crypto promoters, you know, big surprise, are not actually out there for your best interest. But I feel like this is less about Kim Kardashian herself than it is Gary taking a, a shot across the bow at the other 10,000 or so pump and dump crypto schemes that we've seen over the last year or so. What are your thoughts on all this? Uh, well, Ben, I, I never thought that we'd be talking about Kim Kardashian uh, on... <laughs> Today's our, your lucky day, Bill. Uh, ...on our Afeet Puck uh, podcast. I noticed that when the news of this broke, for some reason... A lot of people I follow or, or something felt this was important. It was like all over my Twitter feed for 10 minutes, which kind of shocked me. I'm thinking, really? Is this where we're at? That the most important thing that people who I happen to follow care about is the fact that Kim Kardashian got zapped by the SEC for failing to disclose her bias while promoting a cryptocurrency. I mean, I guess it's more of a testament, frankly, Ben, in my opinion, to the power of Kim Kardashian and her 330 million followers than anything else. Because, you know, I don't see this as any different than what hedge fund managers do all the time when they go on Bloomberg or CNBC and, and talk their book. 
I mean, I never understood why it wasn't insider trading when David Einhorn goes on Bloomberg to talk about some stock that he's either bought or shorting and it gets like consumed as gospel. And yet he's totally and utterly and, and I don't mean to pick just on David, but, you know, it's a it's a phenomenon across the hedge fund interest industry or those hedge fund managers who go on these shows all the time, Carl Icahn, Bill Ackman, whatever, and just are talking their book. And to me, it's a form of insider trading, but the SEC has done nothing about that for decades now, which I've never understood. Because obviously when these guys get on there and talk their book, the stock moves, whatever direction is that they want it to go now, doesn't mean it's sustained. I assume part of the reason why that's not illegal is it's assumed that they are out there talking their book. I, by the way, and I'm, I'm not a I'm not a lawyer and this is not financial advice, but... But they don't disclose necessarily that they have that position. No, but maybe I, I assume that's part of it, that Kim Kardashian went out and promoted this coin without at any point disclosing that it was essentially an advertisement. I mean, this is such a subtlety. I don't understand what's the difference between that and Michael Saylor, who's long Bitcoin to the tune of billions talking about how great Bitcoin is every time he gets a chance. And he's brilliant at it, and I'm mesmerized by him when he does it. And I almost think maybe I need to buy Bitcoin, and then I come to my senses. But I'm not sure what necessarily the difference is and why they're throwing the book at Kim Kardashian, other than, frankly, they suspected that this would make a point because she's Kim Kardashian, and the media uh, and Twitter would just go bananas writing about it. The SEC even said that in their press release. They said this is intended to send a signal to the market and to other crypto promoters out there that um, this kind of behavior is scummy. And, uh, you know, if you cross the right lines, it's illegal too. Look, Bill, I think you're right. And I think, you know, more than anything else, this is a signal that uh, the crypto market has collapsed and it's weak. And uh, Gary Gensler and the SEC are sort of belatedly going after these guys now that it's easy. You've written a lot before about not just some of these crypto pump and dump schemes, but also the promotions we've seen for the SPAC market. I mean, look, you saw like uh, Alex Rodriguez and Ciara on the boards of these SPAC companies. Obviously, that was intended to pump up interest in their underlying stocks as well. I mean, this is all of a piece. SPACs, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, Tesla, you name it. I mean, they're just part of the unfortunately long-running show that has resulted from 13 years of easy money, thanks to the Fed, that is now uh, reversing pretty rapidly. And there's a lot of uh, financial pain out there that was so obvious to see. And yet people don't want to see it or make up their own mind, which of course they're entitled to do or want to believe it or don't have enough perspective uh, on it, haven't seen market. I mean, you know, say you were... 15 and oblivious in 2008. And now 13 years later, you're 28 and with it and want to make money or whatever, then, you know, you probably think that the market just goes up and up and up forever because that's what it did for 13 years. You don't have the perspective that, oh, excuse me, it can also go down and quite rapidly and quite sharply. And Wall Street's a dangerous place and always has been. People forget it all the time. And they can lose money. And so now those people who didn't have the experience of living through 
2008 or 1987 or 2001 or 1993 and 94 now are getting a serious dose of reality. I think it's incredibly healthy for the markets. Why the Fed let this go on for 13 years is one of the greatest mysteries that has yet to be uh, solved. Uh, and maybe historians will be writing about this era uh, in decades to come to try to explain what really happened. I mean, if I had to go out on a limb, I, I would guess that um, Gensler and the SEC are at some level fundamentally uncomfortable with the crypto market as a whole. I mean, they don't want to actually come out and say, like, this is a Ponzi, or a lot of these coins are Ponzi's. And so they're going to, you know, take shots at some some brand name people like Kim K to sort of make a point. But um, if they want to come out and say that this kind of business shouldn't exist, then they should just do it and regulate it out of existence or put some guardrails on it rather than... Uh, slap the wrist of uh, an Instagram and, and television celebrity. Gary, I've known for, for a long time. He taught a cryptocurrency course at MIT, at Sloan School, I believe, at the business school. The guy is very smart, understands cryptocurrencies incredibly well, and you know was head of the CFTC, now is head of the SEC. Gary, where the heck are you on this stuff? Why are we still waiting for the SEC to hand up the tablets about how you're going to regulate the cryptocurrency market. What are we waiting for? Why is it taking so long? And then out of the blue, they zap Kim K, as you say. The cognitive dissonance doesn't make sense to me. What are we waiting for? What is taking so long? I'm sure they, quote, want to get it right. And maybe this is all a, a string of pearls that they're starting to develop. They're going to have various settlements with a variety of people and then at the end of it, you know, come up, you know, hand up their tablets, uh, their regulatory tablets, and then we'll know the answer. Yeah, from your lips to uh, to Gary's ears, Bill. I'm guessing it'll take a long time to build some of those cases. But Bill, thanks as always. Thank you as always, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.